welcome once again to Mindful Recovery, the podcast dedicated to helping you to recover from trauma and addictions one breath at a time. Before we get started, I wanted to make a few announcements. First, like always, I wanted to say that this podcast is not meant as a replacement for your weekly therapy. It's meant as a psychoeducational tool, bring you a little information. And when we do the mindfulness exercises to help you regulate between sessions more fully. That said, I have some rather exciting news in that I'm going to begin offering some personal trainings that you can download. Or if you just want to support the podcast, you can go to the podcast page at mindfulrecoverypodcast.com and click on the support this podcast page and it will take you to the page where you can make a, an episode-by-episode episode donation. And in addition to the resources that I already provide on my Mindful Recovery resource page, I'm going to begin providing in a... I'm going to set up a store, and I'm going to begin providing some downloadable content, some mindfulness-guided uh, meditations that you can begin downloading to deepen your practice. I have decided to do this because I've been asked repeatedly by individuals to record my voice so they could use it at home, whether it's been my own patients or just other people who have listened to the podcast. So there's some really exciting changes coming. I'm going to set up a store to make these things available to you, along with some merchandise, or as the young kids call it now, merch. That's what my kids always call it. Um, we're going to provide merch, and that'll be set up in the next couple of weeks. So keep your eyes open and keep going to the Mindful Recovery Podcast website and looking for those new additions. Hey, this week I have an interview with Dr. Nazanin Mowali, and she is a therapist in California, in the L.A. area, that specializes in the treatment of addictions, especially eating disorders, process addictions, but even drug and alcohol addictions in adolescence and youth. Naz's perspective is really awesome. Um, she talks about learning to know your triggers and using mindfulness to do that, how to handle triggers how you know you can apply mindfulness to every situation even walking and i really really like her perspective on bringing the family into treatment and making them a part of the solution dr mawali thank you for being here thank you for having me robert um your specialization is in primarily eating disorders but also addictions with youth and adolescence and so I wanted to talk today a lot about how that plays out with families and especially the, the eating disorders and among young girls and what that looks like and how society feeds into that. But first, I wanted to start by saying that, uh, let you introduce yourself a little bit and announce your website and tell us about the co-hosted TV show that you do that's international. Wonderful. Um, my name is Nazim Ali, as you mentioned. I'm a clinical psychologist. I have a private practice in Los Angeles. And uh, my website is Oasis2Care. It's oasis2care.com. And my specialty, as you mentioned, I work with uh, families and adults with issues related to eating disorders and addictions. Also, I co-host the Iranian TV show with Dr. Farooqi. It's called Sadaf Haye Saheli, which we talk about different uh, educational and psychological matters. So I talk about my areas of expertise around process addiction and chemical dependency. 
you know, a few weeks ago we did an interview with Dwayne, and he was a process addiction specialist too. His area of specialization was uh, sexual and pornographic addictions. Yours is a little different in that you specialize more in the eating disorders. Uh, but I wanted to talk a little bit about how that differs from some of the other process addictions. Sure. So eating disorder, one of the challenges with eating disorder is it's part of our daily, uh, day-to-day uh, life. I mean, with chemical uh, dependency and gambling addiction, things of that nature, you can uh, take yourself away from them and become sober. But with eating, every day can be a challenge because every day you need to eat to survive. So that's one of the things that makes eating disorder different than other process addictions. Yeah, I, re- I really get that. I mean, when I got clean myself, I've been clean 27 years off of drugs, but I still, you know, the donuts are a great endorphin fix whenever I need them. So how do you advise your clients to go about making these changes? What kind of tools do you suggest for them to use? So as far as, you know, with eating disorders, we have in part of one part of the spectrums are people with anorexia nervosa, with bulimia nervosa, and the other part is people are do binge eating disorders. So there are different kind of treatment, but one thing is start with self-awareness, knowing your triggers and what lead one person to relapse and start like going th- through the like a through the cycle of addiction. For example, for individuals with binge eating disorders. We encourage them the first step, kind of similar to uh, chemical dependency, is just uh, remove the triggering food, things that makes people to start their binge cycles. So that's the first step for individuals with binge eating disorders. With anorexia nervosa, especially with families, we have we create this like support around eating that we can talk more about it if you're interested. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the bins eating would be removing the triggers as much as you can, but then you've got, again, to go shopping into it. So it seems like to me that some of the tools that we use in this podcast and some of the tools you use through DBT mindfulness techniques would be very important in trying to control the cravings and the triggers in the moment that you're going to be exposed to those things that you can't really control. Absolutely. Mindfulness is, I think, big part of recovery from all kinds of addiction. So I think that's definitely very relevant. Right. Um, What, you know, one of the things we use, and and I wanted to ask what you maybe used in the mindfulness area for kind of removing yourself from those triggered places. I like to use kind of those grounding techniques in the immediate process. But what, what is your preference with clients? What do you like to use with them? So um, I think mindfulness is a fantastic tool, but it's about like we have different kinds of uh, mindfulness techniques that we can use. And I think it's very, depending on uh, the client, it can be very different. Some people like like mindful walking or mindful breathing. Some people like more like a muscular relaxation. So it's more about what's a good fit for the client or patient. Or uh, so that's that I think that's very unique to the person. So you like to find what resonates with your patient and then work from there, basically. Exactly. So I want to go back to your practice with adolescents and young adults, because it is different um, than dealing with adult addictions, especially the addictions in the other areas. And I want to talk a little bit about the process addictions and how you approach that with adolescents. 
especially where the anorexia nervosa and the bulimia come in. Um, kind of walk me through what that process looks like for you. So one, like they, they've done lots of studies and uh, various treatments for anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa for teens. And one, one kind of intervention that always uh, has been found very effective is family-based treatment, which was uh, found in Mosley Hospital. And it, in this treatment, the big part of it is uh, engaging family in treatment. So first part of treatment is helping a client to uh, restore the weight they lost also uh, like kind of uh, managing the medical complication because as you know with restriction and purging behaviors they lead to, they can be uh, they can lead to deadly issues and many people even lose their life so first step is kind of a making sure that people are stable and then that that and with that big part of it is uh, in family engagement so we encourage family to take charge in their earlier stages of treatment. That's really interesting because it's very different from, you know, you know, classic addictions like alcoholism and drug addiction in where a lot of that kind of getting clean and staying clean is dependent on the addict themselves. Here you're really integrating that family support to try and help them along, make sure that they're eating, make sure that they're, you know, I'm assuming that there's a lot of kind of positive messages that go along with that. And, in as much as the family takes part in doing that, how is that changing the family's role from what it once was in this young girl's addiction? So as you know, for one person in order to develop addiction, there are a number of things uh, play a role in. Part of it is genetic, part of it is family dynamic. So that's something we definitely want to address in later stages of treatment, but our, for our purpose, like for first stage of treatment, we focus on helping the adolescent to gain weight. And main reason for that is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with studies done by Case. It was this study done in 1944-1945, and they uh, studied the effect of starvation on young, healthy people. They chose a group of healthy individuals, and uh, for the purpose of the study, they uh, they reduce their caloric intake and they become they put them in the starvation uh, mode. And what they noticed was their personality change. These were people with no past history of uh, psychological disorder or medical issues. But after uh, after spending few months in the starvation mode, their personality changed. They out of the, uh, out of sudden, they become very they become introverted. They uh, they were like socially they become isolated. Their memory got affected. Their um, their concentration got affected. They become clinically depressed and anxious. So that's why we want to make sure that we kind of bring the adolescent out of that phase so he or she can engage in treatment. That's why we focus on that first. And then in later stages of treatment, we're going to focus on those contributing factors that cause the eating disorder to develop. So it sounds like it becomes this really vicious self-feeding cycle in that the the beginning starvation uh, period begins to create depression and anxiety and withdrawal. And and everybody who's familiar with addiction knows that those are the, the key components of staying addicted is that 
withdrawal and isolation and depression and continues the cycle. Exactly. And becomes a, that becomes a coping mechanism because people start, like, for example, uh, binging cycle and bulimia because they wanted to lose weight. Then afterward, it becomes their coping skills, the coping uh, style. So whenever they get anxious, like they get into conflict or anything, they go to the coping uh, skill that they know, which is purging. That's interesting because it, 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 so many girls do start just because they think they need to lose weight. You know, I have a 14 year old daughter myself, and when she was in sixth grade, would talk about how she was fat. And this kid didn't have even a 1% body fat at the time. She was very athletic. So it, it's this real kind of cultural thing. And what I'm hearing you say is that they begin trying to lose weight by starving themselves, and then that begins this whole cycle. Exactly. Yes. Unfortunately, that becomes a that can become a coping mechanism for them. So, it may not even be with this particular addiction that trauma is an underlying factor necessarily. Could be one of the factors. Like especially if I see the bulimia in the families that are going through divorce. So everything is so chaotic, and they want they want to use this uh, coping mechanism to cal- uh, to calm themselves. So definitely, trauma can be one of the contributing factors, but that's not the only factors. And what I'm hearing you say is that it it still is an underlying factor in some cases. For instance, if the child begins to use this as a method of well, at least I've got control of this one area of my life when everything else is falling apart. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. She may begin just trying to lose weight. Yes, you're definitely right on that. There are like more um, contributing factors to that and depending on the situation, yes. So tell me a little about the the next stages when you move into those stages when you've got this individual stable. And it it does seem to me it's like, um, you know, when we treat, when I have a patient come in who's using IV heroin or methamphetamine, that's very different than someone who's addicted to marijuana because th- this individual's life is now immediately in danger, which it sounds like is what you're talking about with someone with who's been starving themselves, that their life is immediately in danger. And so you have to use very different techniques to change the behavior in that immediate place. But then once we get them stabilized, I'm able to move to some other more long-term kind of emotion-focused therapies. So I'm wondering how that plays out in your office with someone who is starving themselves once you begin to get them stable and they're putting the weight back on how does that how does your therapeutic process change whenever you move to those middle and later stages right so after their weight becomes stable then we start focusing on the factors that like why they use uh, uh, food as a way to cope the, uh, to cope with the situation. So we teach them uh, effective coping strategies. And the skills I use is mostly from dialectical behavior therapy, which has mindfulness uh, aspect. We teach them distress tolerance skills and also emotional regulation skills. So these are a thing kind of that we give, provide them with a toolbox so they, they're able to cope better when the stressful situation comes up. Right. So we're moving to that kind of maintenance place where we're teaching them how to cope with the cravings, uh, which cravings I'm imagining would look much different in a person who is starving themselves than it is in someone who's binging. So just as I'm talking with you here, I'm, I'm kind of interested in hearing about what the cravings would look like for someone who is starving themselves. 
So uh, one thing is like one of the uh, maintaining factor and also contributing factor for individuals with uh, anorexia nervosa is the social media and uh, things from the environment they're getting. For example, if someone's giving them a comment about their body that can activate that the cycle for example if they're like oh you lo-, even the in, uh, innocent comments that you can give so oh, you lost weight you look good or you gained weight all those things can be triggering for them so because like sometimes their sense of self-worth is attached to their size so it's very important to be mindful of the comments and feedback you give people in recovery from eating disorder because you can activate those uh, uh, those cravings and emotion that might lead to relapse. The other thing is with individual with bulimia nervosa, something that I see is um, the situation uh, can play an important role. So if you're not prepared to deal with a stressful situation or things that lead you to starting, uh, starting the binging and purging, if you're in that situation, that might lead to a relapse or like uh, activating the cravings. That's that's really interesting because what I'm hearing you say is that the the craving is an entirely different kind of craving. That it's a craving for this desired um, outcome more than it is for uh, a substance or a process. It's more social media can can actually trigger the wow, you're you're looking really good, can trigger that whole process again for them, Um, which is a different kind of craving, an entirely different thing. It's kind of a craving abstinence instead of craving a substance. Yes, you're right. Definitely the craving for like uh, eating disorder and food addiction is different than substances. How does a family role have to change? Does the family play – I know – Often with drug addiction, alcohol, uh, even some other addictions, that the when the addict begins to change, they sometimes meet resistance from the family. Is that something that because you have to bring the family into this right up front that you've dealt with by those middle stages? Is that something you begin dealing with right away is what the family roles are and how they're going to have to change? Um, so yes and no. The part of it uh, during the initial assessment – we kind of focus what's the parenting styles are, what are the communication style is at the family. So you want to make sure that there are nothing conflicting with treatment. So uh, the, we're going to address the basic, basic things at the beginning. And then afterward, throughout the treatment, we use uh, various techniques from um, DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, to help families to kind of uh, see what kind of things they do that helps and what kind of things they do that doesn't help. For example, one thing we use is family uh, chain analysis. Sometimes what we see in families is like they say, oh, our day started perfect, and then something happened, and then the teen, our teen, or our son or daughter started like, you know, started the uh, addictive cycle. So what, what we teach them is to break down their interactions, see what part of what uh, part they play in that, uh, like starting the chain. So it kind of helping them to in- help them to increase their self awareness and their role in the situation. So we teach them, like we kind of breaking it down for them. So it's a 
we address the important, most like essential part at the beginning, but it's an ongoing process that we do with families. That's really interesting use of chaining. Um, I've used it a long time with like alcoholism and drug addiction because, you know, when did your mood start to change? What were you thinking about? And we go step by step through the day from I got up happy and then the next thing I knew I was angry and I was using and blah, blah, blah. But here you're using chaining for the whole system, for the family system. You know, who said what? When did this start to happen? When did we notice a change in behavior? That's a really interesting use of that technique. Yes, and I use it on individual basis, as you mentioned, for individual and like with chemical dependency. But I found it, it's for adolescent, it's very helpful because we get to this like autopilot situation in families that we don't know where the conflict started and when things went down the drain. So it's important to teach all of them to uh, use these techniques and they can kind of look and look into their roles uh, together during the sessions and later on in the family meetings. So you mentioned using chaining uh, in, in with adolescents and families in both drug addiction and the eating disorders. How, how does it differ when you're working with a young adult or adolescent who's drug addicted in dealing with the family? Um, how, how does that play out a little differently for you? So one, one thing is with adolescent and uh, with chemical dependency struggles, one thing that I see is usually they are not the customer initially at the beginning of the treatment. They're, they are in treatment because their parents want them. I mean, most of the clients I work with, uh, they are in treatment because their parents want them to be in treatment. And they haven't seen all the negative consequences that most of the uh, individual, like older adults or adults are struggling with as the result of their chemical dependency. So one thing that they do initially is uh, using lots of motivational interviewing to encourage them to explore the pros and cons of using and kind of like to increase their motivation. And I also use families like part of it is similar to uh, techniques I use with individual with eating disorder, but also part, the other part is a little bit different. Yeah, I think with adolescents, especially motivational interviewing, um, because adolescents, most of them, no matter what the issue is, are not self-referred. They're coming because they're told to be here, whether that was by juvenile courts or by parents. Um, I think that motivational interviewing can really get buy-in from adolescents from what I'm finding. Exactly. That's my same experience, too. And I, even in the group settings, we explore, okay, what, what is the benefit of using? What is like a, the issues with using? Kind of helping them to engage in treatment. Because if we don't, like, if we don't have their engagement, we're not going to have that much results. I, I also find that a lot of times, especially with adolescents that are using drugs and alcohol, part of getting that buy-in, part of that motivational interviewing process is really getting to getting them to believe in and buy into the idea that they even have a future. Yes, exactly. Like you know, increasing their hope kind of thing. Like one other thing I use is acceptance and commitment therapy, kind of like teaching them, like helping them explore what are their values and what is a, li uh, what is a life worth living would look like to them. So kind of increase their hope and engagement in that way could be helpful. I think sometimes that can be the most difficult thing for parents, too, is is getting their child to see that, you know, what is it that you want for yourself? I'm not just pushing you 
because I want you to do better. I'm I'm trying to find out what it is you want out of life. That's very important. It's exactly, yes. So I'm kind of increasing the motivation and I'm kind of increasing the hope in the, in the entire family system. Well, that's that's I, I think you're doing fantastic, amazing work. I'm going to put on my website uh, a link to your website. It will be underneath the episode artwork for this podcast. And then we'll also... Um, have a link there to is your is your TV show available online? Is that streamable or is it not? The- it is streamable, but it's live. So I'll send you the link. We can try try to find a way that like we can put an archive in there. Yeah, that well, even if it's not an archive, if they could just would know where they could catch it, you know, individuals because I have listeners even in Iran, it seems. Um, so. If, if they would have some place that they could stream this, that would be fantastic. Sure, I would be more than happy to give you the link. And thank you very much for having me. It's such a wonderful podcast. Yeah, thanks for being here, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Uh, we look forward to seeing your work in the future on the web or, or from your live streams. Thank you very much. It was a wonderful interview that I had with you. So that was my interview with Dr. Nazanin Moali. I really enjoyed speaking with her. I especially was impressed by the way that she brings the family into being a part of the healing. You know, so often in addictions, I see people who have suffered trauma at the hands of family that I just really, really liked her perspective. It was very refreshing to see someone who brought the family in to be a part of the solution, to be a part of the treatment, and really was willing to do chaining with the family and and use all these different, you know, like motivational interviewing and acceptance and commitment therapy with the kids to really get their buy-in to that process and bring the whole family together. So I really, I felt like I learned a lot from Nas, and I felt like she's a really effective therapist. Once again, thank you, Nas, for being on the show. Next week on the show, I'm going to spend some time wrapping up some exercises into one lump for you. Um, We've practiced like grounding exercises, being in the moment. We've practiced some things like deep relaxation methods, becoming aware of pain, and what it means to be the observer. So I'm going to expand a little bit on becoming the observer, and, and I'm going to combine that a little bit with the idea of grounding ourselves in the moment and then doing some deep relaxation. So really the point of being able to combine these kinds of exercises into one full mindfulness experience is that it deepens my ability to sit with uncomfortable places. Life is not always perfect, mine or anyone else's. Um, I found myself in the past few weeks you know, having a really difficult time and, it, and reminding myself, you know, this is what I tell people on my podcast. This is what I teach my patients is that we have to sit with these moments and be able to deal with them. And so even after 25 years of practice, my own practice deepens every day. And so when we combine these methods and we really use them on a regular basis, we find that deepening starting to occur. So that's what's coming up next week. I've got some exciting episodes for you over the next month or so. We have hit nearly 4,000 downloads at this point. We're averaging a little over 100 a day. And I really want you guys to know that I appreciate the listenership. And if you have any questions ever, you can email me at robert at mindfulrecoverypodcast.com and I will get that email. Or you can email me at robert at liferecoveryconsulting.com. And until next time, thank you for coming to Mindful Recovery and remember to take your recovery one breath at a time. <laughs>